0: power of your spirit. Amen. You take your Bibles and go with me to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14 is where we will be in our Bibles this morning. Genesis 14 continuing our study in Genesis and the life of Abraham. Those of you who are visiting with us today, I just want to say welcome. Thank you for choosing to worship with us here at Cloverleaf Baptist. We know we're not the only church in Mobile. You could have gone to today. Uh, But we're so thrilled and honored that you would be with us as we open the word, as we sing, as we worship together, and hopefully you've been able to do that already. Genesis 14. August 5th, 2010 was an ordinary day of work for 33 men. These 33 men came into work the time that they always came in. They did the things they normally did, went to the office, got their supplies, and off they went down into the San Jose mine, out in the remote Atacama desert. Everything that day seemed normal. They drove their truck back into the mine. They descended three miles back down the tunnels into that gold and copper mine. Until everything changed that day, a rumbling began to rip through the mine. Rocks started to fall, and the earth shook, and then complete and total darkness, For the next 69 days, those 33 men were trapped in a subterranean prison, 2,300 feet underground, three miles of tunnels from the mine's entrance. Most everybody assumed that they died in the cave-in that shut off all access to the mine. Yet somehow, against all against the odds, they made it into a refuge, a, a special shelter built into the side of the mine, where there were a couple of days' worth of provisions that were available. And through the extraordinary leadership of their, of their foremen, they rationed out those 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 supplies and they made it their point to survive and they, they they grouped together. Seventeen days after the after the incident, the the mining company and rescuers were were drilling holes trying to see if there were any survivors. And that day they pulled the drill out of the borehole, and the end of the drill had been painted red. It wasn't red when it went down, but it was red when it came back up, and taped to the head of the drill was a note that says. We are all okay. All 33 are alive. Just an incredible story there in the country of Chile. As these men survived, the entire world began to follow the story of the 33 men who were trapped underground and the enormous rescue effort that began to to rescue them. They were alive. This interracial, international race against time began as countries all over the world gathered and brought the, the best experts. NASA got involved, thinking about how people would survive in isolation, and, and drills from all over the world were coming to try to bore through the rock to get to them. Eventually, they got a small tube where they began to lower supplies, and a phone line, and then a video line where they were able to, to talk to their family. And finally, after 69 days, each miner was rescued one by one in a tiny rocket-shaped capsule where they hoisted them up from the mine. How many of y'all remember that back in 2010? I thought that was one of the most extraordinary stories, like just kind of gripped the world. Similar to the story we had a few years ago with the kids who were trapped in the caves there in Thailand, Uh, there's nothing that really grips our hearts more than a story of survival and rescue. I love learning about these amazing rescue stories and just the, the ability people have to survive and to adapt and the extraordinary efforts to which people will go to rescue other people who are trapped. We love those stories of sacrifice, of heroics, of survival, of rescue. Well, in, in Genesis 14, we're going to see a, a rescue story, a, a story of deliverance, of, of rescue, of intervention. That against the odds where Abram, by the power of Yahweh, is granted an incredible victory against an invincible foe, all to the glory of God. Now, here's something that is extraordinary and unique about Genesis 14. God does not speak. In the entire Abraham cycle in Genesis, Genesis 12 to 22, God speaks in every chapter except this one. Some people were like, wow, this seems like an addition to the story. It's just kind of plonked in here. But this really fits what we just had. Last week, Lot and Abram went their separate ways. Now we're going to see the repercussions of Lot's choice as he is captured by the enemies of Sodom. And though God does not speak, he most surely acts in this account. Though we don't hear his voice, we see his power. We see his grace. We see him delivering through Abram for his own glory. And here's what I want to see from this passage I do not want to allegorize it. I don't want to turn this into just sort of this big story where we pull things out. But what we do see is a God who is a delivering God. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament. A God who rescues his people. He's a God who rescues them in, in Exodus, in the Egypt, uh, out of Egypt in the Exodus. We see him rescuing his people from the exile in Babylon. We see him in the New Testament rescuing his people from sin. He is a God who rescues. He is a God who mounts these search and rescue efforts to redeem humanity from sin and from sin's effects. And here in this case from the, the military mess that they find themselves in. We're going to be going to the Lord's table at the end of the message. And I, I didn't plan this. To, it was just the fourth Sunday. But this is a passage that calls us to marvel at the delivering power of God. As we prepare our hearts to go to the Lord's table, what I want you to be able to come away from this message with is just a sense of awe and, wow, look at what, how God delivers his people. Look at how he has delivered me through the cross of Jesus. And as we go to the table to remember the finished work of Jesus, as we come to the table to Remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus and the new covenant that we have and the the fact that we're new creatures in Christ who've been reconciled to God. The point of this is not to just go through some ritual, but it is to remember. It is to rejoice. It is to recall what he has done for us. This passage really divides itself nicely into three scenes, and we'll just walk through these one by one. God delivers his people. Let's read the first 12 verses, and then we'll dive into that first scene. It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations or Goyim, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemeber, king, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together, that is, allied together in the vale in the valley of Siddim. Which is the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. So if you picture a map of Israel, you maybe have one in the back of your Bibles. End of the Jordan Valley, the end of the Jordan River is the Dead Sea, the, the Salt Sea, the saltiest body of earth on the planet, lowest point uh, geographically on the planet as well. Twelve years, verse four, they served Kedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him and smote and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth. Parnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Amim in Shava Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is in the wilderness. And they returned, they turned back and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and of the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazon to Mar. And there went out the kings of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the valley of Sidim. So basically going back, reiterating what we saw in verse 3. With Keterleomer, king of Elam, with Tidal, king of the nations, and Aramfel, uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, Four kings with five. And the veil, the valley of Sidim was full of slime, of tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took, that is the Ketaleom, or that, that, that band of armies and kings, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, and they went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Okay, a lot of names and places that we're like, I have no idea where these places are, who these people are. Here's the point I want to draw our attention to in this first scene, and we'll come back and explain it, is that God delivers from a terrifying enemy, right? There's this terrifying enemy that God delivers. We're going to get to that part of the story later on, how God rescues and delivers. But this is a ferocious enemy. A couple of facts here. First off, this enemy smashed a larger alliance. Okay, just to make sense of this, there are two alliances of kings. There's an eastern alliance and there is a western alliance. The eastern alliance we get in verse 1. We've got Amraphel, we've got Ariok, Keterleomer, and and Tidal, Tidal, however you want to say his name. So there's these four kings they come from the east. The, the, the place named Shinar is the Bible's name for Sumer. That is in modern-day Iraq. We get uh, the king of Elasar, probably modern-day Turkey. Uh, Keter Laomer, he apparently is the leader of this coalition. He's from Elam, which is modern-day Iran. Okay, Persia, it's part of Persia. And then we've got Tidal, king of nations, probably a reference to the Hittites. So we've got Iran, Iraq, and then up sort of north in, in Turkey. But they are coming from the east of Palestine, the east of, uh, of the land of Canaan. Then we've got another alliance of kings in verse two. We've got Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemebur, and the king of Bilah. So these four, or uh, are, are these five kings. Uh, they're from the, the Jordan Valley. So if you picture a map of Israel, they've got the Jordan River running right down the middle, and you've got down to the south, the Dead Sea. These five kings are grouped around the southern Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea, perhaps even to the south of the Dead Sea. So we've got these two alliances, one with four kings, one with five kings. East versus west. All right, so that's the first part of this that that we notice. Verse 2 says they made war with Bera and and all these guys. That's the first mention of war in the Bible for what it's worth. It doesn't mean that everything was hunky-dory up to this point. There's a lot of violence in the world, but this is the first time it's mentioned. Uh, War is not a new reality, but it is something that has plagued humanity since the fall. You get individual humans who don't get along with each other, and then you get nations that don't get along with each other. And apparently what happened, verse 4, 12 years they served Keterleomer, and in the 13th they rebelled. So here's Keterleomer from the Eastern Alliance. He had put all of the Western kings in the Jordan Valley under tribute. That's what you did in the ancient world. You'd come and conquer them, and you're like, hey, send us so much silver and gold and cattle and whatnot every year, and you will be kind of our vassals. We'll protect you. Uh, but you've got to keep paying us. So the way you would rebel is you just stop sending the tribute, right? You stop sending the money off to these guys. Basically extortion, right? It's basically geopolitical extortion. Send us stuff and we won't attack you and we'll protect you. Uh, if you don't send us stuff, then we're going to come after you. That's the sense. So the eastern kings have dominated the western kings. They've put them under tribute a dozen years, 12 years. Uh, that's a fairly long amount of time. And then year 13, they stopped sending the tribute. And the year 14... The eastern kings come back to put them in their place. makes sense. Uh, Four kings from the east versus five kings from the west. Uh, And so here they come. Now, these kings from the east, they're going to come along, conquer conquer Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to capture Lot. Abram's going to come along and fight them later on in the chapter and defeat them. But I want you just to see how ferocious an enemy this eastern alliance is. These guys coming from Shinar and from Elam and from from the Hittite region. This is a a very, very terrifying enemy. So here here comes Kedorlaomer. He is apparently, as I read this, quite a savvy tactician, quite a savvy strategist. Uh, His his strategy here is brilliant. Um, So later on, like thousands of years later, Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte would come along and understand that one of the key principles of warfare is concentration of forces. You can take an army that is smaller than the other combined army, but if you can sort of separate them out and beat them piecemeal, you can win battles. And that worked really well for Napoleon from France, taking over all of All of Europe. That's basically what Kedorlaomer does. He comes along with his army from these four kings, and then he beats the Transjordan, and then he comes down and beats them sort of one by one to where it's all said and done, these four kings or these five kings are left alone. So verse five. In the 14th year came Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him. So notice he's kind of the head honcho of this coalition. And he smote the Rephaim and then the Zuzim and the Anim uh, and the Horites. So there's these different groups. Now, they weren't mentioned earlier. But if you're thinking of a map, they are further north. Um, I think where modern-day Jordan is, to the east of Israel. Further north, apparently these guys were in on the rebellion uh, and had risen up against them. But instead of all joining their forces together, they kind of stayed where they were. So if you can picture a map, here comes Laomer sweeping down from the north. That's where invasion routes would come from. You come from the north. He works his way south and begins defeating enemies one by one. Now, you read these names, Rephaim and Zuzim and Enim and Horites, you're like, I have no idea who these guys are. Well, here's why this matters. Think about who writes Genesis. It is Moses who writes Genesis. God inspires this through him. He's recording Israel's history. This is written to the people of Israel before they are about to come in and conquer the land of Canaan. And guess which enemies that they are going to face, that they're going to be absolutely terrified of. It's going to be the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Anim, and the Horites. These guys absolutely scared the daylights out of them. In fact, Deuteronomy calls them by one group, the Anakim. Remember when the, 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 the spies go up into the land from Kadesh? You know, there were ten were bad and two were good. They go up into the land and they see there's giants in the land and we were as grasshoppers in their sights. It's these guys. So what is God doing through Moses? He's saying, hey, look, these enemies that you are really, really terrified of got beaten in the past by Keter Laomer, and then Mo, or Abraham, with his little upstart group of soldiers, went and beat the guys who beat up the guys who you're afraid of. All right, it's like when you're playing baseball and you're facing this team and you're like, man, they're really scary and their pitchers are really big. I remember Little League. Like, right, we need to check his birth certificate kind of thing. So here's, these, here's this team you're scared of. But if you realize, hey, this other team, the Angels, we creamed them last week, and the week before they creamed the team that we're scared of. Right? You're kind of like, okay, if we can beat them and they can beat them, We can beat them. That's kind of the idea. So this is meant to show the people of Israel these foes that you're afraid of, these enemies that you're afraid of, have already been defeated in the past. And the same God who delivered Abram from Kedalaomer and delivered these people into their hand will deliver you. There's a real point here. If you want to cross-reference Deuteronomy 2, verses 10 to 12, if you want to jot that down, you can see hundreds of years later, 500 years later, these same enemies are are terrifying Uh, to the people. So here comes Keter Laomer. He starts in the north, starts beating these people one by one, sweeping down, down the Transjordan region. Then he gets to the Horites in Mount Seir. That's going to later on become Moab and Edom. Uh, it's, it's a very rocky area in, in Jordan today. So he sweeps all the way down the south. And then it says in verse 7, they turned and came to Kadesh. They turn and make it come to the north. So this is, here's where the brilliance comes in. The, the king's there in the Jordan Valley. You're expecting an attack from the north. That's where invaders come from, the north. But instead, he comes down the other side of the Jordan River and then comes up behind them. right? Classic outflank-the-enemy kind of maneuver here. So he comes to Kadesh. He beats the Amalekites and the Amorites, um, other groups of people that Israel would be scared of through their history. And then, verse 8, the king of Sodom, Gomorrah, and all these guys, they go out into the Vale of Sedim. So they go out near the Dead Sea to fight this battle. By the way, uh, archaeologists have... have Discovered in that in that region. There are tar pits, places where basically petroleum is forced up through the earth and there's this gooey tar that comes up south of the Dead Sea. On the eastern shore of the Dead Sea they've discovered remnants of five towns. We got five kings. So they're a pretty good idea where this is happening in the Dead Sea region, which by the way is a pretty miserable place to be. So they come and they join them in this valley. So we get the statement there in verse nine. There's four kings, the Eastern Alliance, versus five. You think, well, the guys with five should be able to win, but no, they've already lost all of their allies. Their allies have been defeated piece by piece, and here they are left against this enemy that's almost invincible. Uh, Those who served in the military know that sort of morale, and the psychological side of things is often as important as other aspects of war. If you're facing a foe that you're like, nobody's beaten them before. So I'm reading about the Civil War. I love history. One of the things that happened, Robert E. Lee got this this, uh, reputation for being invincible and he could defeat armies twice his size because the other side were like, he can't be beaten. That's kind of what's going on here. Here comes Keterleomer with this this force, four against five, but they've got it in their head that we've already lost. So this foe with Keterleomer, what a name, by the way. Uh, I had a hard time. I had to practice saying that all week to be like, I don't want to mess that up every time I say it in the sermon. Keterleomer shows up. He's not been defeated yet. He comes up against these five kings. So verse 9 says, four kings against five. And in the Vale of Sedim, uh, the Vale of Sidim, the Valley of, uh, of Salt, was filled with slime pits. Now, don't think slime as in gooey stuff that you get in science, but think tar. The, these tar pits that are oozing up from the earth. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. What awesome generals. The foes come, and they're like, ah, run away. They're off, running away, and as they're going, boom, they fall into the tar pits. Or they may have just been like, we're going to go hide here. They'll never look for us here. Like, yeah, nobody's going to go look for you there. That's a horrible place to hide. So here they are hiding out in holes in the ground. And then look at verse 10. And those that remained fled to the mountain. So this battle is over in about five minutes. The Kedorlaomer shows up. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah run, hide in the ground, and everybody else runs for the hills. So now there's nothing standing between Kedorlaomer and the cities of the plain. Hey, they've not gotten their tribute in a couple of years. They're thinking, we'll go get it by force, right? We will carry it away. So verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their vittles, that is their food supply, and they went their way. So they basically raid them. They're not there to occupy. They're there to be like, let's get our stuff. Let's punish them and show them that you don't mess with Ketor Leomer and our little coalition of eastern kings. So they come, they take all the stuff, they take the food supply, and they take some hostages, and then here they go back to the north. So they came in from the north, swung around, and now they're going back to the north heading home with all their stuff. Uh, that's that's the scene that is set this is a ferocious enemy that's this is the point why does Moses take 12 verses half the chapter 24 verses half the chapter feels like this arcane listing of names and places that we don't know about and this description of a battle that we're like who are these guys what's going on is to set the stage to be like this is a terrifying enemy nobody's beat them they're just conquering nobody can stop them and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are hiding in a, in a hole in the ground. All the army has run away, and they have taken everybody captive. They've plundered. They, they, they've plundered Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, they also have tremendous military prowess, feeding the enemy piecemeal, outflanking them, coming from behind, defeating the enemy, and then trying to take the city. That's sort of a classic mistake that's made in history, is trying to conquer territory rather than defeating armies. They, they get it right. So this is a double victory. It highlights the the vaunted invincibility of these guys. The list of enemies that are defeated is immense, and it would later be relevant to Israel in their own history. And yet Abram, who's just one nomad with a few hundred servants, is going to come back and kick the daylights out of these guys. It's going to be awesome. So if we're going to marvel at God's deliverance, marvel at the foes that God has defeated. You can read the story of Scripture and see God do these incredible works of deliverance. This is one that we, don't, we wouldn't really think of. Like, oh, my favorite Bible story is the one with or Laomer. Like, I don't remember that in Sunday. So I think this might have gotten skipped. I don't know. Uh, but David and Goliath, God coming and delivering his people through a faithful servant. Uh, Israel and Egypt and the, the plagues and God rescuing his people with an outstretched arm and with his might. We see God delivering over and over and over again. Why? It is his character to deliver his people from the effects of sin, from the effects of Of course, we can't help but our minds go to the New Testament and we find out that God is a Savior. He is called God our Savior. Jesus Christ is called our Savior. You know what the word Savior means? Deliverer. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Here's Yahweh saving. This kind of deliverance, Jesus will work out on a cosmic kind of scale, delivering us not simply from a political problem, not simply from Hey, there's oppression, but he's going to deliver us from sin and all of its effects. And if we're going to marvel today at God's deliverance, we need to realize how vaunted the foe was we could not defeat. Guess what? The, the foe that we face down is not Ketor Laomer and his buddies. It is sin and it is death. There is not a single person in all of history who has ever on their own defeated sin or defeated death. There's no one in all of history who has ever been able to, to conquer guilt on their own. There's nobody in history who on their own has been able to make themselves immortal or give themselves eternal life. It's the, the, the problem that plagues humanity from beginning to end is the problem of sin. And we are in it deep. We, have li- we live our lives in violation of God's law and rebellion to his rule. You say, I'm not that bad of a person. Listen, we live our lives with the whole notion that I call the shots. That is my will that is central and everything else bows to that. It's all about me. Comes out in a myriad of ways. We we lie. God says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, yet we lie to tr- protect ourselves, to make ourselves look good. You know what Revelation 21 8 says, all liars will have their place in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. Guess what? I'm guilty. That's what I deserve. Right? That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. Because you know, lying is not just a little sin against other people, it is a rejection of the truth of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God takes marriage very, very seriously, yet it is normal in, in, in human history for people to run roughshod over their marriage vows and to walk out of marriages and to be unfaithful in marriages. And Jesus goes a step further. He says that commandment's not just about your behavior, but it's about your heart. He says you look at a woman, you look at another person with lust, you've committed adultery already with them in your heart. That's the enemy. It's, it's our sin sin that we cannot deal with or atone for on our own because it's against an infinitely holy God, I cannot pay the price myself. And yet God delivers us. He rescues us. He saves us. That's the first scene here. We see that God delivered from a terrifying and invincible enemy. Now we come to the heart of the story, and interestingly, we don't get a lot of space devoted to this, but we see secondly that God delivered through a faithful servant. Okay, so verse 12 says they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son. Now, that's an important note. Uh, The previous chapter, Abram and Lot went their separate ways. Lot sort of greedily is like, "Ah, I'm going to go live down in the Jordan Valley. That looks like a great place to live. But when Lot threw his lot in with Sodom, he also threw his lot in with Sodom's fate. You can't come along and be like, I'm going to be a friend of the world and compromise with the world without also experiencing the trouble that this world brings and so he's like i'm gonna go hang out with these people i'm gonna go live there i'm gonna go become one of them he goes from camping on the edge of the city to now being such a part of the city that he's taken captive with them by the time we get to genesis 19 he's gonna be one of the decision makers so there's just this sad trajectory of compromise in his life that's what happens here lot is captured he's taken off with them and ironically keteleomer had no idea who lot was he had no idea who abram was he's not like doing this despite abram but he's going to tangle with Abram's family. And this is going to be his undoing, right? Back in Genesis 12, God has said, the one who curses you, I will curse. And so here comes Keterleomer. He messes with Abram's family, and now God will see to it that he is judged. So verse 13, the story now takes its turn. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain or under the oak of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. So there's a report that comes to Abram. There's a, there's a, a survivor who comes. Uh, Kedalaomer has smashed army after army. He has plundered Sodom and Gomorrah. He's taken Lot, that's a family member of Abram, taken him captive. So here's this survivor who comes into camp. You can almost picture it as the, as the sun descends into the west. A straggler stumbles into the camp from the east where the battle has occurred. He comes with the heart-stopping news that all the kings of the plain have been defeated, and Lot has been taken captive. Abram's camp here at this point in the plains of Mamre, under the oak of Mamre in Hebron, he's about 20 miles away. So that's quite a hike to, 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 to make for this guy to come, probably late in the day. Now notice in verse 13, Abram is called Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time that word Hebrew shows up in the, in the Old Testament. It's the idea of one who is crossed over. He's someone who is a nomad, someone who is a wanderer. He's got some buddies, he's got some people that he has, he's made an alliance with. He's got Mamre and Eshkol and Aner. These are three guys, three other powerful chieftains in the area that he has made peace with, who have made an alliance with Abram, and they're going to, to, to take that alliance and act. So verse 14, Abram indeed acts. And when Abram heard that his brother, that is technically his nephew, had been taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. So he's got these, these servants. He's apparently got a very large retinue of servants. Uh, these are ones who were born in his own house, so they are loyal to him. They are trained. Uh, they, they're probably trained in the art of warfare. They are, they are skilled with the sword. And it says he armed them. Literally, the sense of that is he led them out. It's like he unsheathed the sword. It's the same word. He, it's like his servants are like this... This, this finely tuned weapon that he takes with him to go and pursue the enemy. So 318 guys. Um, interesting we get that detail. This has got all the hallmarks of a historic narrative. 318 guys. He's going to go pursue the, the army of Keterleomer. He says, all the way unto Dan. Now, Dan became sort of the northern border of Palestine, of Canaan. From Dan to Beersheba, from north to south will be the phrase. This is about 100 miles to the north. That's a long way to go on foot. Has anybody ever walked 100 miles kind of in one go? Okay, none of us. This is an enormous effort that is being made by this little strike force going all the way to Dan, 100, 120 miles to the northern reach of the land. Now, as this faithful servant Abram begins to enact this deliverance, notice he's taking the initiative. Lot's not the one taking the initiative. Lot doesn't have a whole lot going for him. In fact, Abram would have sort of, if I were Abram, I'll be honest, I would maybe be tempted to be like, you know what? Lot was the guy who was selfish and went and hung out with those bozos in Sodom. It's his problem now. Let him figure it out. Lot is in this pickle because of his own dumb choices, because of his own selfish decisions. It's, it's, It's his sin. It's his selfishness that has gotten him into this mess. And yet Abram graciously says, I'm going to take the initiative. Lot's contributed nothing to this entire affair except for his own bad choices that made the entire rescue effort necessary. So here comes Abram seeking Lot to rescue Lot, coming along to to take the initiative of leading his armed servants out and and being ready to go to battle. He takes the initiative of forming an alliance to go and do this. This, We see just the, the magnanimity of Abram He's not petty. He's not looking at Lot and being like, well, Lot, a tough day to be you. But no, here he comes to rescue him, to save him. But then verses 15 and 16, we get this ever so brief description of the battle. I wish we had more here, right? I'm kind of like, this would be interesting to get 12 verses here, right? To find out about how this battle went down. But this is all we get. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night. So he's going to do a multi-pronged attack from multiple uh, directions he 's going to do it at night so he 's going to take them by surprise. good strategy on abram 's part by the way, and he smote them that he defeated them, defeated them, he struck them and pursued them into Hobah, which is on the left hand of damascus so if you 're an ancient Israelite, the way you do your directions is you face east, so left is going to be to the north so he 's even going to the north of Damascus, and he brought back all the goods and brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also. And the people. So nighttime raid after this enemy that's, that's riding high. By the way, they think they have cleared the, 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 the battlefield, right? They think they have skunked all the enemies. They're like, man, we beat the Anim and the Zuzim and all these guys and the five kings. There's no one out there to get us. So here they are, full of pride, retreating back with all of their plunder. They're probably up late around the fire, getting themselves drunk and all the wine that they stole. They're at a place where they're incredibly vulnerable because they're not expecting attack, kind of a classic raid here that we have going on. This multi-pronged nighttime raid with stealth and strategy would win the battle. We don't get any more description of how the battle went down except for the fact that it is stunningly successful. 318 dudes attacking at night against a previously victorious enemy, and off they run from Dan, and they keep running north. So if you picture a map again, moving north from Dan now into modern-day Syria, off they keep running. He keeps chasing these guys down, Clear out of the promised land. That's, that's key. They're no longer within the borders of the land God promised, but now they are running for the north. And so Abram chases them all the way down to Hobah, and he recovers all the goods. As the army retreats, you can just imagine them throwing away golden goblets and being like, I can't carry all this stuff. Leave the sheep behind. We've got to go because there's this big army coming after us. And eventually, at some point, they left the captives behind, and off they went back to their own land. So verse 16, Abram, he takes the initiative, but then he wins the battle. Well nigh nice, single handedly. Back in verse 11, notice back in verse 11, they took all the goods, they went their way. Verse 12, they took Lot and they departed. Now, verse 16, he brought back all the goods and brought back again his brother. Notice how that, those answer each other. They took, they took, he brought back, he brought back. It's mentioned twice that they took and twice that he brings back. And then we get that little word, all the goods. This is a smashing victory. Abram wins completely, and he restores everything that was taken. This is complete, total deliverance, complete and total victory. Abram wins the battle. Now, think about the courage this takes. On what basis does Abram, who just a couple of chapters ago was lying about who his wife was, goes to Egypt and he says, She's my sister, they're going to hurt me, and I'm scared. To Abram, who is now bold and going forward and taking acts of courage, you know what what drives us is faith. Faith and confidence in the promises of God. He knows God has promised that I'm going to inherit the land. God has promised that uh, I'm going to have this this offspring. God has promised that all this is going to be mine. And some upstart king from the east, Keterleomer, is not going to undo that. This is driven by confidence in God. Listen, we can only overcome fear insofar as we are familiar and confident in the promises of God. And I don't mean taking promises just willy-nilly out of the Bible and be like, this is mine, every promise, every, every line. No, I mean understanding what these mean to us in Christ and how I am right with God through the finished work of Jesus and, and that I need not fear any enemy. The thing that's most terrifying to people in this world, ultimately, is the fear of death. Right? You think about what we're what, what what we most afraid of, fear of death. That's why when we get a, a, a diagnosis of, of some kind of, oh, the, the, Death, it's, it's scary. No, it's the, the, the country from whose born no traveler returns, right? It, it's, it's terrifying. It's unknown. Think about all the fear that ultimately has, has gripped our country over the last year and a half. It's ultimately a fear of dying. You know the one enemy that Christians need not fear is death? Because death was conquered and the empty tomb. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, he kicked death in the head and won the victory over death. And death one day will die. Death one day will be defeated. Where is your sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, as Christians, if I understand that I have been delivered from death, that's the greatest enemy that anyone could ever face. If I have been delivered from the greatest enemy, why do I fear the lesser enemy? Why am I afraid of what my coworker might say about me when I, when I try to tell them about Jesus? Why am I afraid of the fear of man and what people will think of me if I actually am truly honest? Why do I fear how family members will react when I say we're going to lead this family according to the word of God? Why do I fear when God calls me to step out and do something that, that his word requires if I don't fear death? Right? Doesn't that make it makes sense? It doesn't make any sense for us to be afraid of the smaller enemies when God has already taken care of the bigger enemies he's taken care of death, there's nothing left for us to fear. But when we look at this victory, we want to marvel at the deliverance that is ours. We marvel at the deliverance because we realize how great the foe is that Jesus defeated, but we marvel at it as well when we consider how he defeated. Abram wins this victory taking the initiative himself, winning the victory himself. Guess what? God has delivered us in much the same way. He took the initiative We weren't going up to heaven, knocking on the door of heaven, being like, hey, God, could you come up with a plan to rescue us from sin? We loved our sin. We loved darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. We're enslaved to sin. And then here comes God sending his only son to seek and to save that which was lost. We didn't go after God. God came after us. The gospel comes to us through the working of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit quickens us and convicts us and gives us life and grants us repentance and faith and transforms us and makes us new creatures in Christ and reconciles us to God. It's his work from beginning to end. Marvel at our deliverance, one through a faithful servant, but ultimately for us, one through the faithful servant, through the servant of Yahweh, who has borne our transgressions and carried our griefs and who was stricken and smitten and afflicted of God. He's the, the, the true servant who has delivered us. Now, that's not to say this is an allegory, but this is to say, look at how God delivers. Look at the pattern. Look at what he saves us from. Look at how he saves us. But notice how the story ends now in verse 17. We come to this final scene, and there's an amazing amount of space that's devoted to this event. And we don't get a whole lot of commentary on what it means, but look at verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Laomer. And of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's vale, the king's valley. So here's the king of Sodom, right? He's crawled out of his little mud hole that he's been hiding in. I'm sure he smelled beautifully, right? Here he comes all dripping in tar. That stuff does not come off easily, right? If you've ever done roofing, he's covered in tar. He stinks. He's filthy. Last time he went out into the valley of Sedim and was defeated. Now he comes back into the, the valley of Shaveh before the victorious Abram. And this guy's really got some audacity to come along and try to take some credit for the victory. Uh, He's the guy who created the whole mess. But now here he comes to meet Abram and kind of be like, yay, Abram, we all love you. Now, verse 18, we have another king. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth, forth bread and wine. Now, he was the priest of the Most High God of El Elyon. And he blessed him. That is, Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies unto thine hand. And he gave him, that is, Abram gave Melchizedek tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich." Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anair, Eshko, and Mamre, let them take their portion. This brings us to a wonderful coda to the story, and we see that God delivered for his own glory. This shows God notice who gets all the glory here. God gets the glory. Now we've got two kings, and they could not be any more different, the king of Sodom and the King of Salem. Berah, king of Sodom, his name literally means evil. Ra is the Hebrew word for evil. Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. So these guys are very different. The king of Sodom, evil. King of Salem, king of righteousness. Two very different kings. They both show up and meet Abraham uh, after this victory. And what comes out of this is that God is glorified. So Abraham makes this 120-mile trek from Damascus back down to Hebron. As he passes by Salem, which most people uh, associate with Jerusalem, You can hear even the name Salem and Jerusalem, Jerusalem, there's relation there. So he comes by what would later be Jerusalem, later be the Holy City, and this, this enigmatic figure, Melchizedek, comes out to meet him. We don't see him. He just shows up here, and then he disappears from the pages of Scripture. We see him pop up in Psalm 110. He gets mentioned, and then again in Hebrews 7. But here he comes back, Melchizedek, king of Salem. He meets Abram. So you'll notice verses 18 to 20, we see... Uh, the king of Salem speaking, and then we see the king of Sodom speaking. And these two kings together, their various responses show to us this deliverance is to the glory of God. So notice that God's glory in this deliverance is declared by the king of Salem and declared to the king of Sodom. So the king of Salem is going to say, Blessed be God who gave you the victory. The king of Sodom is going to not say that, but Abram's going to say, Hey, guess what? God gets all the credit. So it's going to be declared by the king of Salem, declared to the king of Sodom, that God delivers for his own glory. So look at verse 18. The, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, he brought bread and wine. So he comes bearing gifts. The king of Sodom comes demanding gifts. Very different response. He came with bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, I want to resist the urge to think, wow, bread and wine, that's just like communion and the Lord's Supper uh, we don't read the Bible backwards. We read the Bible forwards. What this would signal in the context? This was the feast of a king. Bread, we think, you know, bread and water—that's kind of the basic staples of life. But when it becomes bread and wine, this is a celebration. He shows up to meet Abram's army, and he's like, "Guys, let's have a party. You guys just won a big victory. Let's celebrate what God has done through you." Uh, by the way, that is what we do every. Sunday. Every Sunday we come to celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus has conquered death, that we have been delivered, that we have been forgiven, that we have been redeemed. Every Sunday morning is Easter Sunday. Why do we, why do we gather on Sunday and not Saturday? Because this is the day Jesus walked out of the tomb. This is the day that the victory was won. This is the day that death was conquered and sin was defeated. And so we gather every Sunday to be like, hey, I don't care what's going on out there in the world around us. Jesus is victorious. Our lamb has conquered. Let us follow him. That's what every Sunday is. It's a celebration. He comes with bread and wine. And this is now he was a priest of the Most High God. We find out about Melchizedek in in Hebrews 7, that he was without father, without mother, without end of days. Now, that's not to say that he was eternal. That is to say we don't know anything about his lineage. Uh, later on, the Jews would have the, the Lion of Aaron. To be a priest in the land of Israel, you had to be in the right family and the right lineage. Melchizedek was not from the right family. He's a Canaanite king. He's not a descendant of Shem. He's a descendant of Ham. He, he's a Canaanite king living in the land of Canaan, yet he worships the one true God. This is to show that even in Genesis, before Jesus has ever come, God's heart is for the nations. And here's this random king, Melchizedek, who's not of the family of Abram, who's not a descendant of Aaron, and he is a priest of the Most High God. Pretty sweet. Here's the other thing about him. Um, And you can read, go this afternoon and read Hebrews 7. We find out that, hey, and later on, Jesus is a priest, but he's not from the right tribe either. And so the writer of Hebrews says he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a king, and he is a priest in one person. In Israel's history, those were separated. The tribe of Judah was the kingly tribe. The tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. But Jesus comes along and unites those two offices in himself. And so the writer of Hebrews says he's like Melchizedek. He's after the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever. This one who is a king who is also a priest. So Melchizedek points us to Jesus, points us to the one who is, who is greater than him, who is perfect, Jesus Christ, who is the king, who reigns, who is the priest, who represents his people. So he comes with this gift. He comes along for this celebration. There's a lot that we could say about the identity of Melchizedek. Um, some people think that he is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I'm inclined to say that he's a human being. See, in this chapter, we have had nine other kings, all of whom have been literal, actual kings. It makes sense that the tenth one would also be a literal, actual king, not a, not a figurative person. Also, Hebrews says that, that Melchizedek is kind of like Jesus. How do you compare someone to someone if they're the same person, right? So he's like Jesus in that he's a king and a priest, but Jesus is is eternal and better in every way. But here's the thing I want to notice is the blessing. Look at verse 19. And he blessed him. Back in Genesis 12, God says, The one who blesses you, I will bless. So Melchizedek pronounces a blessing on Abram and says, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God. So Abram is in relationship with, he represents the Most High God, and then God is styled possessor of heaven and earth. That is, he's the one who has created heaven and earth, the one who owns heaven and earth. The Canaanites all had territorial deities. So you'd have the king of Sodom, and they would have their own gods, and these various gods, and and any battle would be viewed as a battle of the gods. Hey, here's a god who rules supreme over Ketolaomer. Here's a god who reigns supreme over Sodom, over Palestine, over Egypt, over all things. He is supreme and he is sovereign. Everything in this universe is under his authority, is under his control. And there is not one millisecond of history that is not fulfilling his command. There is not one inch of the creation that does not answer to his rule. He rules over all things. When you turn on the news, remind yourself of that. When you open Facebook, remind yourself of that, that he is the sovereign God, possessor of heaven and earth. So he said, blessed be, the, blessed be Abram of the Most High God. So he blesses Abram. And then notice verse 20, similar pattern, and he blessed the Most High God. And this is key. Which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand? So here the king of Salem declares that God is the one who wrought the victory. You see that? He's not saying, Abram, that was a brilliant strategy he had. Nighttime raid, man, that was genius. No, he comes along and is like, Abram, God is the one who delivered the oppressors into your hand. This victory was not won by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. This was accomplished not through Abram's works, through Abram's efforts, through Abram's genius, but through the power and the blessing of God. See, this deliverance is to the glory of God. The king of Salem, in front of everyone, he doesn't just like, hey, Abram, this is really God. No, he's like, everybody, I want you to know, blessed be Yahweh, Blessed, blessed be El Elyon, who has given this victory. Blessed be this God who delivers. So he blesses Abram, and then he blesses God. Now, what does it mean to bless God? Because often a blessing, we picture someone kneeling before someone, hands being laid on them, the greater blessing the lesser. How do we bless God? To bless God is to recognize God's goodness. One commentator put it this way to recognize God's goodness as shown in the bestowal of divine benefits to a subject. We say, God, look at everything you've given to me. This is from you. Look at how you have given me life. You have given me eternal life. You have given me forgiveness. What a glorious God it is to speak well of God. It is to ascribe worth and value to God. It is to worship. It is to praise. It is to honor Him. Now, the end of verse 20. And He gave him tithes of all. What's going on here? This is not just Abram being like, hey, thanks for the nice little word of blessing. I'll pay you off here, like you would pay off sort of a, a pagan priest or a shaman. No, this is a recognition God gave me the victory. Everything here is God's, and so I want to signify to everyone watching that this is God's victory by giving a tenth to this priest. He's he's essentially saying, I'm dedicating this to God. It belongs to him. It's God's victory. It's God's stuff. It's the first time we see tithing in the Bible. Notice there's not a command here saying, and thou shalt tithe from henceforth to all eternity. But it's a pattern. It's something that Abram did to recognize God's favor. Now, later on in Israel, in their theocracy, there's going to be a tithe which is going to function very much like a tax. A tax that would be there to support the temple, to support the poor, to, to support the needs of the Levites. We get to the New Testament era and we see God's people giving generously to meet the needs of his people. One of the ways that we glorify God, one of the ways we worship God, is to honor him with our substance, honor him with our income, honor him with what he has chosen to give us, recognizing it's all his anyway. So hopefully that's your attitude when you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give a tithe or I'm going to give an offering or I'm going to support the missionaries. It's not just, I've got to do this or God will curse me. No, I do this because I love him, because he has delivered me, because he has rescued me, and everything I am and everything I have is his. You're not really worshiping if you just drop a check into the box back there. You're worshiping when you say, everything is mine, or everything I have is God's, and because of that, I'm honoring him with this victory. But here's the point. The the glory of God in this victory is declared by the king of Salem. He's saying to everyone, look at what God has accomplished Look at the victory that he has won. To him be all the glory and praise. This is not to Abram. This is not to his servants. This is to God. He gets the credit. Throughout scripture, we see God's people celebrating his victories, and his deliverance is giving him all the credit. For by grace are you saved through faith. We get saved not by works. It says not of works, lest any man should boast. Why does God come up with a plan of salvation that's like, there's all these sinners who cannot save themselves. I'm going to do everything to save them. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my spirit. I'm going to send gospel preachers. I'm going to bring them to repentance and faith. Because he here's why. So nobody can come along and be like, oh, I contributed this to my salvation. Right? If God came along and says, Everybody, anybody can be saved so long as you do a handstand. Well, we could still, in our sinful little hearts, be like, well, I did a handstand, so I contributed. Just a little, that, that's just the way that sinful fallen nature is. But if it's God from beginning to end, guess who gets all the credit? God and God alone. You don't get saved by being baptized. You don't get saved by joining a church. You don't get saved by signing a card or raising your hand or walking an aisle or praying a prayer. You are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ and him alone. And our only response is to be like, God, it's all you and it's not me. And I rest in Christ in repentance and faith. And even repentance and faith are God's gifts. His working from beginning to end, he gets the glory, so Ephesians one is this great hymn of praise to the glory of God, and we get this refrain to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace. ezekiel 36 God 's promising to one day rescue his people from exile, and he says, "Not for your sake, O Israel, do I do this. I do it for my own sake, his own glory. That is why God saves to his own glory alone. Now this is going to be declared to the king of Sodom. So the king of Sodom is standing awkwardly by, he has nothing to do with the one true God, his name means evil. He's standing weirdly by, awkwardly by, while Abraham and Melchizedek are having a worship service and celebrating, he's standing over there in his stinky, tar-stained clothes, thinking, I better kind of stick my oar into things. And so he says, sort of out of the blue in verse 21, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And the way this is written in Hebrew is... uh, Give persons take goods. Like it's very terse. It's kind of like, oh, fine, Abram, I'll acknowledge that you won a victory. I'll be so magnanimous as to let you keep the spoils. Well, guess what? It was all Abram's. It, 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 to, you know, to the conqueror go the spoils. Abram has won the victory. It's actually his stuff. He doesn't have to give the king of Sodom anything if he doesn't want to. Yet the king of Sodom comes along being like, give me the people. You can take the stuff. Look at how nice I'm being. Look how generous I'm being. Whereas it wasn't yours to give king of Sodom, Bera. Notice how Abram responds. Abram could have said, you know, zip it. You go back to the tar pit. I am now king of Sodom because I have won this great victory, but he doesn't do that. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord. That is to say, I have sworn to him. And by the way, notice it's capital L-O-R-D to Yahweh. He's identifying this El yon the God most high uh, of Melchizedek as Jehovah God that we read about in the, the later part of the Bible. Because some people were like, well, El was the head of the Canaanite pantheon. No, 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 this is the God of the Bible, the one true God. He says, I have lifted up, I have sworn to him, the possessor of heaven and earth. Notice that the language is identical to what Melchizedek said. Abram is saying, me and Melchizedek, we worship the one true God. We're on the same team here. That I will not take a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. He's saying, I'm not gonna take any of the stuff because I don't want you down the road to be able to say, oh, you see how powerful Abram is? I gave him that. Basically, what Abram is saying to, Mel, uh, what Abram is saying to the king of Sodom is only God is going to get, his, get the credit, only God is going to get the glory, and you're not taking any of it. And I believe that so strongly, you take the stuff. Abram's heart wasn't about the stuff. He was all about God getting the glory through this deliverance. So we see Barah's greed... He wants to try to reassert his control over a situation he created through his own military incompetence. He offers to give Abram the spoil as if it were his to give. And yet Abram says, you take it. By the way, the one who blesses Abram will be blessed. The king, Malch- king of Salem is blessed. but The one who maligns Abram will be cursed. We know how the story ends for Sodom and Gomorrah. right? They're going to be destroyed from fire, by fire from heaven before this is all over with. But Abram says, I don't want you to say, I have made Abram rich. I want to ensure that God and God alone gets the glory. Abram has put his confidence in God, and he wants everyone to know that God is his great treasure. Look at chapter 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Abram, by foregoing the spoils of Sodom, got something so much better. He got God himself. God is not just the rewarder, but God Himself is the reward. Abram says, I'm not going to try to find my satisfaction in what Sodom offers. I'm going to find it in God alone. And God's like, Guess what, Abram? I am your exceeding great reward. Here's Abram standing before a pagan king after a great victory, saying, God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory. Think about our deliverance that we have through Christ. Think about what we've been delivered from, from sin and death and hell. Think of how we've been delivered through the work of Jesus alone on our behalf. And think about the aim for which we have been rescued. We've been rescued to be a people for God's own name. We've been rescued in such a way that only God gets the credit. We don't get any. As we go to the table this morning, maybe there's a little bit in your heart where you're kind of thinking, yeah, but I'm a pretty good person. No, 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 no. Let's lay aside all claims that we might have to God's favor. Recognize it is grace and pure grace. This passage extols for us the, the glory of God as our deliverer, a God who has done everything necessary to save us. It's one that shows a God who delivers Abram and Lot and a God who delivers you and me. Think about our deliverance. Our deliverance was sourced in the eternal plan of God. It was carried out by the Son of God and it was accomplished for the eternal glory of God. I'm reminded of Romans 11 that says this, Oh, the depths of the riches of Both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Father, we worship you and we delight in you and in the deliverance you've given to us through Christ.